It is only in the modern America of the last 20 years that we've seen such a radical degradation of these principles. Hello, you are listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Chris interviews Barry Lynn, Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation. Lynn has written extensively on political and economic results of consolidation of power in the U.S. He's presented his work to world leaders in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. In this discussion, Lynn delves into how policy in the U.S. has evolved to favor the concentration of power. Every industry has endured extreme consolidation, including telecommunications. As more communities attempt to invest in publicly owned networks, they often find themselves as targets of deep-pocketed and distant incumbent providers. Chris and his guests discuss how the foundation of our system drives this type of destructive behavior and how looking back may actually help us move forward. Here are Chris and Barry Lynn. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell. Today I'm talking with anti-monopoly expert Barry Lynn, senior fellow at the New America Foundation and author of the book Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. So you're a antitrust, anti-monopoly expert. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you, why is there a need for anti-monopoly law? There's a need for anti-monopoly law mainly so that we can protect ourselves against the concentration of political power. I mean, this is something that goes back to the beginning of this country. It really goes back to the real Tea Party, and it's the idea that uh, in order to protect our most basic liberties, we have to ensure that no one is concentrating a huge amount of power in the political economy. You know, back then it was a trading company, the British East India Company, that we were worried about. Nowadays it might be a company like Walmart or, or, or Google or Comcast. And let me um, just actually reflect on that for a second because it reminds me of what I thought was one of the most scary passages of Susan Crawford's book on uh, Comcast in which she notes that during the discussion about whether Comcast would merge with NBCU, uh, Comcast hired the services of just about every lobbying firm in D.C. to make sure that uh, all of the lawyers would not be available to uh, competing uh, interests that might disapprove of the merger. Uh, is that the kind of power that you're worried about? That's kind of a, a marginal example, but it's actually a very good example of you know, a company that has pretty much unlimited pocketbooks. You know, they can just bring millions and tens of millions of dollars to the table. Uh, they have the ability to, for instance, as Susan Crawford reported, just essentially buy up the law by buying up the lawyers, buying up the, 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 the lobbyists, conflicting out all the people they want to conflict out of the room. And, uh, you know, that's a strategy that more and more companies use nowadays. But the, the real issue, what we have to be thinking about in this country, and I know there have been some discussions about this. This is actually was at the heart of what the Tea Party was talking about in its origins. This is certainly what the folks in Occupy were talking about. We, but we need to focus on the fact that we see power in this country concentrated in more awesome ways than it has been in more than 100 years since the era of the plutocrats. And the big difference today is that our plutocrats are armed with technologies that J.P. Morgan, that John D. Rockefeller, they could never imagine having powers like these. 
So John D. Rockefeller had the power to call out the militia and famously in the Ludlow Massacre about 100 years ago in Colorado. Uh, what powers do they have today specifically that rival that kind of power? Well, they have the power to know what we're thinking. They have the power to manipulate the information that flows into our minds. Uh, I mean, they, uh, the, you know, the combination of monopoly and big data, uh, monopoly of concentrated uh, information and communications institutions is something that did not exist back then. You know, it's, uh, I mean, the, the fact is, is that if there is a strike today, uh, any, you know, a powerful company, a set of powerful people can still get the militia called out. They could still get the police called out. That's that's no different today than it was then. The difference is that uh, what we have today is, is these these technologies that uh, allow this incredible knowledge about us from one side, and we have almost no knowledge going the other way. I want to raise a different question, which is whether it's correct in terms of the messaging uh, to talk about monopolies. Uh, occasionally I hear from people who say, you know, you call Time Warner Cable or Comcast a monopoly, but they're not really a monopoly. They face some competition. It's really an oligopoly. And I'm, I'm curious, with what, what sort of language should we be using? What's appropriate to use here? Since the beginning of the country, people have just called monopoly any time that someone has too much power within a marketplace. And, you know, just to go to an expert on this issue, who you know, to find this, uh, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, back in, in the 1960s, you know, he, when he was asked to define what a monopoly was, he said it was any company that had sufficient power to set the terms uh, in negotiations. And basically every sector now uh, of the economy in the United States of America, we see one or two companies that really have the ability to set the terms. Which, uh, along which negotiations take place. In that sense, these are monopolies. They have the ability to push their desires onto the public. I use the word monopoly because it's just a simple way of communicating. It connects us to the way and to the discussions that we've had in this country going back to 1773 to the original Tea Party. We we don't get into all this technical conversation about you know what concentration is good, what concentration is bad. Extreme concentration of political economic power is a bad thing. So with this concentration of power, I, I started thinking as I was reading your book, which I highly recommend. Um, I was wondering how much we could actually blame a single company. Like let's just pick on Time Warner Cable. If Time Warner Cable didn't act the way it does in terms of keeping prices high, experimenting with bandwidth caps, and otherwise doing things that kind of hurt consumers and local businesses, if Time Warner Cable wasn't doing those things, then I'm guessing Time Warner Cable would be slighted for extinction by uh, Wall Street. I rarely, if ever, vilify individuals, uh, individual business people. Because the individual business people in this country, I, you know, I know a lot of these folks. I came out of, of business journalism. And so the great majority of executives who work at, at these corporations, they want to do the right thing. Um, so, you know, people don't come to work. They don't go through life seeking to do ill to the public. Not most people. I mean, let's not be naive. There are some who do. Uh, but they are stuck. They are trapped within a system of law that requires them to do exactly what they're doing, and that is to seek to, uh, to run these companies in ways that subvert the well-being of the public, that subvert our, uh, our, our 
our economic well-being and subvert our political well-being. Um, and what we need to be focusing on is not chastising the bad company. What we need to be focusing on is fixing the rule of law so that we get out of our political economy what we want. What we want is liberty. We want a functioning democracy. We want rough equality, uh, certainly of opportunity, and we can get it. It's a matter of getting the principles right. It's a matter of getting the rule of law right. And in terms of getting the rule of law right, I think among some of the people that I'm familiar with, they might immediately turn and say, well, the real problem is the political parties. You've got the Republicans that want to defend this sort of oligopoly, and the Democrats would like to do something, but they really just they can't get it done. One of the things that you come back to time and again in your book is that this is really these sort of pro-concentration policies that we see at the federal level. They really come from both parties. Can you speak to that a little bit? The way I see political economics in the United States going back over 200 years is that you have different political regimes that get put into place in which both parties operate within that regime, within the rules of that regime. Right now, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, they're essentially both parties of capital. They, they're, both, they both, they're both answerable to Wall Street. You know, there are people within the individuals uh, within the Democratic Party who are fighting that. There are individuals within the Republican Party who are fighting that. But the idea of saying that one party is good and one party is bad, I find to be naive in the extreme. Uh, going back to, say, the 30s and 40s, 50s, 60s, back then you saw a situation in which both parties essentially accepted that anti-monopoly law was good, that competition was a good thing. Uh, if you look at you know, one of the great reformers when it comes to political economics of the 20th century uh, was, was Eisenhower. You know, he took uh, things that were put into place by Roosevelt that were expanded under Truman, and he kept pushing for them. Uh, that, you know, so under that regime, both of the parties essentially were designed to serve the overall interests of the public. Now, obviously, there were exceptions then, and there are exceptions today, but the, what we saw back then is both of the parties operating within a regime that was designed to distribute power, and today both parties operate within a regime that is designed to concentrate power. It's interesting when I mean, you get beyond the left-right perspective and you look at it in terms of the concentration of power. And I recently saw this in a discussion that I was having with some other uh, very smart folks on, a, on an email listserv about a new idea from AT&T where uh, companies can pay to exempt their data from the caps that a user would have. And the the main argument for those who are defending AT&T's new program was that it would lower prices for consumers. And that proved that this was a good idea and that no one would really be hurt by this program. What what sorts of things should we be considering aside from just the price to people who are buying services? You know, when we look at competition policy, competition policy includes things like trade policy. And when we look at competition policy writ large, uh, from the beginning, for 200 years in this country, we focus foremost on protecting the liberties of the individual, making sure that the individual is not enslaved by people using corporate estates to capture control over certain economic activities that people engage in. Second, people used 
our anti-monopoly laws or competition policy to distribute power in ways that would protect our democracy. Third, they used a competition policy to ensure that we did not end up dependent on any single foreign country, be it Britain, be it France, the way we are now dependent on China, for instance. These were things that people watched out for. And it was only then that they would get into issues of, like, is the system structured in a way that delivers certain efficiencies that would benefit the consumer? Today, by contrast, the, the main thing, the only thing, the only measure that we use to uh, decide how to uh, uh, structure our political economy, how to, to structure competition with our political economy, is uh, the, 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 well, the supposed well-being of the consumer, which we define as how do we deliver them bigger quantities of stuff or the same quantity at a lower price. The, the shift from like a citizen-focused competition policy to a consumer-focused competition policy, that took place in the 1970s and early 1980s. That was a revolutionary act. That was an act that was, that was a revolution that was perpetrated in the United States of America by a little tiny elite of folks working for mainly the Reagan administration. And then later embraced by uh, the Clinton administration, I, I think you would say. Later embraced by the Clinton administration, certainly embraced by the Obama administration. And, to, you know, it's like, are, are the people, were the people in the Clinton administration, uh, in Bush, in W's administration, in Obama's administration, are they fully cognizant of what they're doing? No. I mean, it's one of the fantastic things about having ideologies, about having idea structures, is if you get the idea structure to be accepted, people just follow those ideas without really understanding what the implications of those ideas are. So the fact that we have an entire political economy designed to promote efficiency, a certain kind of efficiency, as measurable by price, uh, and that, that that actually subverts all of the checks and balances that we put into place over 200 years, um, People don't see it. People don't see it because at this point the uh, the the idea uh, is so widely accepted. I mean, gosh, who would be against establishing a market structure that would help out the consumer? Well, that brings me to an example that I was hoping I'd, I'd have a chance to bring up, which is in uh, nearby Monticello, Minnesota, where um, they had a situation where local businesses were literally sending employees home in the afternoons because the Internet access at the, on the offices was so bad that they could be more productive from home. And uh, in response, the city built its own network and faced a number of hurdles along the way. But the the most damaging one thus far has probably been the big national cable company, Charter, um, slashed its prices from $145 a month for uh, one of its uh, bundles to $60 a month, guaranteed price for two years. Now, talking to a lot of experts, it's hard to get a sense of exactly what the cost to Charter is to deliver those services. But there's a consensus that it's probably between $80 and $100. So every month, Charter is losing at least $20, let's say, to uh, any subscriber who takes this service. Now, that's lowered the price for consumers um, temporarily for over this period of two years while they run their competition out of business. Um, 
But the long-term effect is undoubtedly going to be much worse when the city is again left without having any real choice uh, in providers. Now, you've gone over sort of a lot of the why this is a problem from a lot of different angles, but what I'm curious about is if there's a remedy. What what can a city do uh, in that case? And um, as one question, then the second question is what should the federal government policy be when something like that happens? Well, the you know, we used to have laws, and these laws went back to the days of railroads when, when you couldn't get from point to point unless you were on the railroad. It went actually back to the, also to laws that were established for the telegraph system. So that, or even beyond that, it goes back to the, the days of paddle wheel steamboats. And it was this idea of common carriage. And meant that anybody who showed up and wanted to ride on that steamboat, who wanted to send a message on that telegraph system, who wanted to ride on that railroad, they would get a seat. They would get their message taken. And they would get it uh, taken at the, at the exact same conditions as the next person in line, and the person after that. The idea was that it, there would be posted rates and that everyone would pay the exact same rate and that everyone could see. If you didn't like the rate, if everyone thought the rate was too high, you could go complain, and you could go to the government and see if you could knock that rate down. But the fact was there was no discrimination. You mentioned uh, you know, AT&T earlier, or uh, you know, Comcast. And what, uh, you know, you know, Comcast now owns NBC. We can imagine, actually, I, we could probably imagine happening today, a situation in which they use their pipes to promote the distribution of NBC products and to discriminate against the distribution of products that are put out by CBS, by Fox. The principles have been known for hundreds of years. Common carriage actually goes back to Roman times. It is only in the modern America of the last 20 years that we've seen such a radical degradation of these principles. We haven't seen that in Asia, we haven't seen it in Japan, we haven't seen it in Europe, only in America have we seen it. So the, the point is that the laws, we know what the laws should look like. We got it right for hundreds of years, and we know how to get it right again. That's terrific, and, and actually this whole discussion of common carriage is very topical as um, the idea of common carriage is uh, played a major part in the uh, circuit court's uh, recent opinion about network neutrality. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and teaching us a bit about uh, anti-monopoly. I look forward to, to everything that you do, and so I look forward to reading your next uh, article. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to talk to you. For more on Lynn's work, go to newamerica.org and find his bio on the About and Staff pages. In addition to his published work, you can learn about his appearances. We encourage you to purchase Lynn's book at your local bookseller or check it out at the local library. The title is Cornered, The New Monopoly, Capitalism, and the Economics of Destruction, and it's offered by Wiley Publishing, the years 2010. We want you to email us with questions or ideas for the show. Write to podcast at mutinetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. We are at CommunityNets. This show is released on January 28, 2014. Thank you to the group Haggard Beat for their song, Laszlo, licensed using Creative Commons. And thank you again for tuning in.